When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the Everything 80s Podcast, we're counting down the top 21 shows of the 1980s. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. And in the 1980s, with pretty much only three networks, TV was absolute king. There weren't streaming services, cable TV wasn't a thing yet, even home video was just taking off, but it wasn't accessible to everyone. If you wanted entertainment, it came down to movies and television, and not just television, the three networks on television that provided all of the content. So... This is going to be a countdown of the top 21 shows of the 1980s. So before we get to that, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. Okay, here we go. So let's lay out the actual conditions for this list because I did consider a bunch of stuff. So the first thing is I'm going to focus on shows that had their main run during the 80s. So not including ones that started, say, in 1989, but gained popularity into the 90s, like Saved by the Bell or Seinfeld, or Full House. This is also going to include shows that started in the 70s and then maybe ran for a few years into the 80s, like Three's Company or The Muppet Show. I'm also not going to include cartoons because I did a whole separate show and, and blogs all about that. And then the other thing is the perspective. So this is obviously going to be my own personal bias, but I've taken a step back to look at this list to consider other factors and shows that I know were big hits and cultural phenomenons, even though they weren't directed for my specific age range. You know, if I'm making this list right now and taking away my, you know, childhood bias, it would look a lot different because then we take into into impact all the, you know, production and writing and impact of the show. So it's sort of a combination of both of those things. And then again, if I just made it completely from my childhood perspective, I wouldn't include shows like Dallas or Dynasty, you know, things that weren't in my wheelhouse. So I've taken kind of the approach of both of these aspects. But as we get into more of like, you know, the top 10 and the top five, they become obviously more personal and more based on the viewpoint of a kid in the 80s. So that's all the groundwork. And let's get into the list. Okay, kicking us off at number 21, Silver Spoons. Silver Spoons was a show that was able to showcase Ricky Schroeder as Ricky Stratton in sort of an Annie meets the Fresh Prince situation. Ricky moves into a mansion with a father he has never met. His dad is this man-child who runs a toy business, and Ricky helps him to grow up. His mother was only married to his father for a week, and he has a grandfather who shares Ricky's sensibilities. Silver Spoons ran from September 25th, 1982 to May 11th, 1986, airing on NBC, and then had a syndication season going from September 15th, 1986 to March 4th, 1987. You might not remember it running this late into the decade 
Uh, and it was a Sunday night show that aired at 7.30. There's, there's going to be a few of these shows that ran a lot longer than you probably remembered. At least they did for me. This was a fun show that featured the, the, theme, the theme song Together, which changed a bit over the seasons, including a synthesized version. And for each show, I'm going to go through two or three different fun facts. So to finish with Silver Spoons, it's a good show, not an all-time great, but I think worthy of the list. And that's the other thing with this thing. I mean, I could have made this list 30 shows long, 50 shows long, but then at that point, you know, you're basically just listing the shows of the 80s. And then I didn't want to make it just like a top 10 because that's almost impossible with all the shows. So I think I hopefully narrowed it down here. Okay, so fun facts. In Silver Spoons, this series introduced us to a young Carlton Banks, a.k.a. Alfonso Ribeiro, who was brought in to hip up the show. The house used in the opening is actually located in England and has the great name of Compton Winates and built in 1481. Silver Spoons introduced us to Jason Bateman, who played Derek, and was getting so popular they were worried about him upstaging Ricky. That actually got him pulled from the show. Number 20. Golden Girls. So this is an example of, you know, this might be higher on other people's list, but, you know, Golden Girls is way out of my wheelhouse as a kid in the 80s, but it's a notable show that had a huge following and a huge impact. It started on NBC on September 14th, 1985 and ran until May 9th, 1992. Golden Girls was the story of four older women who shared a home together in Miami. The show really had some heavyweight stars in Betty White, B. Arthur, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty. I remember seeing some of Golden Girls at a young age and realizing the like the, a lot of the jokes were pretty taboo. Like I didn't understand them, but I knew they weren't necessarily appropriate. The series featured great writing and won multiple Emmys and Golden Globes. Golden Girls was a rating juggernaut too, as it was always in the top 10 rated shows, except for one year out of the entire run. In the last season, it dropped to number 30, but the show would still usually average around 20 million viewers, which would make it, you know, number one by far today. Like I said, Golden Girls would usually be higher on a list like this, but, you know, since it's from my perspective, Blanche, Sophia, Rose, and Dorothy will just have to be happy to make the cut here. Okay, some fun facts. Each of the four stars won an Emmy at one point, making it one of only three sitcoms ever to do this. The original skit script featured a gay cook, which was going to be pretty groundbreaking, but it was thought that the show should feature a lot of scenes in the kitchen, and it was better for the girls to be doing the cooking, so take that as it is. Estelle Getty's character, Sophia, was originally going to be a guest star, but she auditioned and tested so well they had to include her. Okay, number 19, going along with this sort of theme of classics that you know, you might not have been aware of, or not just aware of, but, you know, you know, focused on as a kid, Dallas. You know, if you're a youngin' in the 80s, there's no way you weren't aware of it, but I'm pretty sure you weren't watching it. I know I wasn't allowed to. Dallas, though, may have been the invention of water cooler talk, as it was one of those shows that created a gigantic collective viewing experience. The series centered around the Ewings, a very rich family from Texas that was always getting into family feuds and stuff. The show, not the game show, the actual um, debacles, the show first, uh, first started out focused on the marriage of Bobby and Pamela, and then the character of J.R. Ewing took over. Dallas was originally intended as a five-part miniseries for CBS, but was so successful that a whole series was commissioned. The show was a hit due to its pretty dramatic themes of power, sex, money, wealth, basically all the sins from the Bible. It's really... Um, sort of a microcosm of what was happening in the 80s as far as the growth of wealth um, 
and like obscene wealth and the one percent and all that stuff and Reaganomics and and all that. So it was you know seen as like sort of a representation of wealth and greed growing out of control. Most people don't realize, but Dallas ran for the entire decade in the eighties. It started in nineteen seventy eight with the miniseries, but then ran all the way till nineteen ninety one. From nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty six, it was always in the top ten most watched shows and the overall number one in nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty two, and nineteen eighty four. The other years, though, it was still number two. The, the show is a massive hit, is what I'm trying to say. It originally aired on Saturday nights, which is usually not touched by original network programming, and then it would end up moving to Sundays. It's funny over the years how Saturdays just didn't you know, involve sitcoms or anything like that. It's more devoted to sports. Of course, there's the ultimate cliffhanger in the Who Shot JR final from the 1980 season. The reveal show was the fourth episode of the fourth season and the biggest moment in TV history at that point until The Simpsons Who Shot Mr. Burns, which was better, I say. Okay, some fun facts. The Who Done It episode about Who Shot JR was delayed until November as one of the first networks to take advantage of what is now called Sweeps Week. That episode was watched by 83 to 90 million people, aka 76% of all TV viewers. In the U.S., we're watching that show, which is crazy. That's like Olympic numbers. The episode had the highest rating of any TV show in U.S. history until it was dethroned by, if you know your trivia, MASH. And that's what I mean about the 80s and the power of TV because there was nothing else to do. And it created these collective viewing experiences. It's not unlike, you know, monster mainstream movies. That was what was happening with TV in the 1980s. Okay, number 18, Magnum P.I. Magnum P.I. was, to me, like, you know, if Indiana Jones drove a boat. A young and very handsome Tom Selleck starred as Thomas Magnum, who was a private investigator living in Hawaii. Magnum is kind of like a playboy who is able to take on the cases that interest him most. He's that typical, you know, play-by-your-own-rules type of guy, and I think we really see him, that character, live on in Chief Jim Hopper in Stranger Things. And, I mean, it's a direct connection. Like, he's actually wearing the Magnum P.I. shirts and stuff. Magnum P.I. ran from 1980 to 1988, which is, again, longer than I'd realized. The show featured amazing locations and some of the sweetest cars you would see on TV. At its peak, Magnum P.I. was the number three show in 1983, attracting over 22 million viewers. They had actually planned to kill off Magnum at the end of the seventh season, but fans went nuts, and that was actually why there was an eighth uh, season released. It was a way to give Magnum a better send-off. Magnum P.I. was also a big critical hit, which I was not aware of, and was nominated for 19 Emmys and 13 Golden Globes. I had no idea it had that kind of you know critical power. Okay, fun facts. Uh, did you know <laughs> Tom Selleck himself won an Emmy for this show, 1984? A Magnum P.I. film was being planned in the 90s, written by Tom Clancy, who was a huge fan of the show. This obviously never happened. Speaking of Indiana Jones um, being contracted to play Magnum P.I., uh, that cost Tom Selleck the role of Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, I mean, I don't know. It worked out either way. Turns out there was a writing strike that year that delayed filming on Magnum P.I., meaning that he could have taken the Indiana Jones role. But by then, it obviously had already gone to Harrison Ford. That's a double ouch for Tom Selleck. Okay, number 17, Boozum Buddies. And 
we can thank this show for bringing us Tom Hanks to the world. This is a weird show that only ran from two seasons, but it's pretty interesting. It ran from 1980 to 1982 and was all about two single guys who had to disguise themselves as women in order to live in an apartment that they could afford. It's a funny idea on paper, and it starred Tom Hanks and, and Peter Scolari, uh, but they were able to make it work as they started as Kip Wilson and Henry Desmond. Booze and Buddies really was kind of like a trial run for what would eventually be Perfect Strangers, which, spoiler alert, is going to be on this list. Ratings-wise, it didn't do so well. And I think that the really it had really bizarre, quirky humor to it, which was pretty original at the time, but it was lost on a lot of people. This show is also very notable because it's one of the only shows that featured a lot of improv work, which isn't very common for a network sitcom. It's actually almost unheard of. Hanks and Scolari were able to improvise off each other so well, and a lot of what you see of them just riffing and improvising is what ended up in the shows. Booze and Buddies is... Uh, interesting because it may have been one of the uh, big victims of the Screen Actors Guild strikes of 1980. The show started with good ratings, but the effects of the strike were felt and the quality of the show suffered, leading to a big drop in the in the ratings. It coasted into a second season on Fumes, where they try to revise the premise, but they find out that Kip and Henry are, so this is 1981 talking, not me, they find out they're living in drag, so but they're somehow allowed to stay living in the apartment. So that's able to sort of open up the premise a little more somehow. Okay, fun facts. Booze and Buddies was meant to be the male version of Laverne and Shirley. It was filmed on the same stage where the Lucy show was filmed and was later used for Cheers and Frasier. The show was originally pitched as a buddy comedy, but some confusion in the pitch meeting got it sold as a show with men in women's clothing. So, I I don't know. Interesting note in TV history. Okay, number 16, Night Court. And I love Night Court. I think I was just old enough to get the humor when it was in its prime. Again, a lot of it would still fly over my head. The premise was funny, and Harry Anderson and his magic tricks made for a great draw to the show. The premise for Night Court was extremely simple as it followed the night shift of a New York municipal court. Harry Stone was the judge who presided over the court and served like a Johnny Carson type figure. It was the casting and the characters that made Night Court such a great show. It was basically a one set show. Like everything happened right there. Uh, Amazing people in the show, including Marky Post, uh, Richard Mull, and the great John Larroquette. Night Court ran from January 4th, 1984 to May 31st, 1992. Again, I do not remember this thing running eight seasons. It had that awesome jazz-based intro theme song and would be a top 10 show in 1987 and 1988. Night Court was also nominated for a ton of awards with John Lerouquet winning three Emmys for Best Supporting Actor. Okay, fun facts. A pre-Seinfeld Michael Richards appeared on Night Court as a man who thought he was invisible. Due to syndication uh, deals that fell through, Night Court never got a proper season finale if you were a fan of the show, which would be remedied if you remember that episode of 30 Rock. They went back and gave them a proper send-off. Richard Mall, a.k.a. Bull, ended up being bald after filming a sci-fi movie, and he liked the way it looked, and he kept it for the character in the show. Okay, number 15, and this might anger you or whatever, but Cheers. And I get that Cheers should probably be higher in this list. But again, this is now I'm getting into more of the viewpoint of the, a child of the 80s. I still liked what I'd seen of, of Cheers, but I grew to like it more and more as I got older. 
And Cheers is an important show for setting the stage for must-see TV, which would help turn NBC into the juggernaut it was that would evolve more into, you know, when Seinfeld and Friends were coming up, not far around the corner. Cheers also gave us the classic will-they-won't-they between Sam and Diane. That would also pave the way for other sitcom couples. Again, will-they-won't-they, Ross and Rachel, Jim and Pam. Cheers ran into 1993, but started way back on September 30th, 1982 on NBC. When it first debuted, it absolutely tanked, finishing almost dead last in the ratings. Apparently, the concept of people just sitting around in a bar and drinking didn't resonate with the audience. But but something happened. Slowly but surely, Cheers moved its way up to become one of the highest rated shows through its whole run. It was in the top 10 in 8 out of its 11 seasons, and at its peak was getting over 27 million viewers. It featured an all-star cast including Ted Danson, Shelley Long, George Went, Woody Harrelson, Kelsey Grammer, Christy Alley. And features one of the most iconic theme songs in television history. Television side note here: television is interesting in the '80s because shows were allowed to develop. They didn't nowadays. Things have to be hits right out of the gate, and it's it's very rare to even see that much original programming on TV, especially when it comes to sitcoms. I'd say the last of the real sitcoms would probably be like The Big Bang Theory. Maybe I don't know if Modern Family is necessarily a sitcom, but those like network. Um, comedy, you know, half hour sitcoms or or however you want to define them. But things, and again, with most things being released on Netflix or in documentary form or whatever it is, things have to immediately hit or they're not going to last. In the 80s, they allowed, the if, 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 if the show didn't start well, it wasn't immediately canceled, which would happen today. They gave it time to grow and develop and find an audience. And that's, I mean, Seinfeld's another perfect example. It did horrible. It, it did horrible for the first four years. And but they allowed it to slowly grow and give it a chance. If Seinfeld came out today, it wouldn't have lasted past a season, two at the most. And they, again, you know, they knew to give these things chances because they would grow into these monster, monster hits because they'd seen it happen so many times. But that was just the way TV worked back then. Okay, fun facts with Cheers. The real-life death of Nicholas uh, Colonsanto, a.k.a. Coach, needed to be written into the show, but it's also what brought Woody Harrelson into the series. The original goal of the show was to replicate the Mary Tyler Moore show, but in a bar. Um, Last fun fact, I went to the real Cheers in Boston, and I stole some napkins from it, so that's my admission here. Number 14, Miami Vice. If there was one show that personified the style, music, and culture of the 80s, it was Miami Vice. Miami Vice was the story of Tubbs and Crockett, who were undercover detectives working in Miami. Um, obviously, the show ran from 84 to 89 on NBC and was a pretty groundbreaking show, even though like we look back and sort of laugh at it as far as being oh, you know, overly representative of so many 80s styles. But Miami Vice was unique as it served itself similar to a music video replicating the now dominance of MTV. It was really based on the new wave culture of the 80s and it would include segments with mainstream songs. No other shows on TV had really ever included any pop music in their episodes. They relied on their own music design and scores. With its bold pastel colors and outfits, Miami Vice was able to separate itself from a lot of the other cookie-cutter-based shows that you would find all over TV. There was a lot of action on the show with frequent gun battles, um, focuses on combating prostitution and drug trafficking. Miami Vice was basically an MTV crime drama, and it made the show an instant hit. Fun fact, the first season generated a 
staggering 15 Emmy nominations. You'd never think of Miami Vice as a, like this critical darling. To take advantage of its contemporary soundtrack, Miami Vice was one of the first shows ever to be broadcast in stereophonic sound. Actors considered to be cast in the show included Jeff Bridges, Nick Nolte, and Mickey Rourke. All like all of them I could see working well. Okay, number 13, Who's the Boss? Again, another, you know, blueprint for an 80s sitcom. It aired on ABC, started to, starred Tony Danza, who is um, a retired minor league ball player who now works as a nanny for a divorced executive. It featured the very popular Alyssa Milano, and the show worked, you know, very well due to its simple role reversal premise. There was always that tension between Tony and Angela. That worked well, too, and it helped drive the series. The show debuted on September 20th, 1984, ran until April 25th, 1992. Again, another one of these longer-running shows I didn't realize. Who's the Boss wasn't my absolute favorite, but a show that was very easy to watch and jump in at any point. And again, you may forget what a success this show was in the 80s. It was nominated over the course of its whole series. It was nominated for 40 Emmys and Golden Globes, plus every kid growing up loved Alyssa Milano. So fun facts, the original title is going to be called You're the Boss in reference to Angela hiring Tony. And there's that awesome community episode where Abed takes um, that uh, Who's the Boss course. I think it's season two, maybe season three. That's a good one. It's all about actually who is the boss. Who's the Boss always aired on Tuesday nights, but it moved to Saturday again in that rare um, television sitcom night. Um, And it created an alternative to TGIF um, that would end up killing it in the ratings and leading to the end of the series. A spinoff called Living Dolls was planned that would feature Holly Berry and Leah Romini as um, she had appeared on a few of the episodes. Okay, number 12, Growing Pains. Growing Pains followed in that same Who's the Boss model and again was that quintessential family hit that everyone was able to watch together in the 80s. Like uh, another show we'll get to soon, Family Ties, a lot of the success of the series was built off the back of the young and hunky Kirk Cameron. Growing Pains was centered around the Seaver family with the great Canadian hero, Alan Thicke, as the head of the family. He's a psychiatrist that works from home and as his wife Maggie is out in the world working as a reporter. The show is very light and airy, didn't follow any certain premises, it wasn't threatening Some considered it a little too hollow. Johnny Carson would regularly make cracks about growing pains in his monologue and how it lacked any depth and performances and heart and soul and anything like that. But that's, I mean, kind of the essence of a sitcom, really. You're able to just jump in, not have to think too much, take it for what it is and move on. What made this successful is that the Seaver family was a lot like a majority of so many real life families. You felt like you were watching your own family on TV and it made it easy to draw in a good sized audience. The show debuted on September 24th, 1985 and ran pretty late until April 25th, 1992. In 1988, it was the fifth highest rated show and would regularly attract 20 million viewers. Growing Pains had an amazing theme song as well in As Long As We've Got Each Other. It also brought us a young Leonardo DiCaprio who showed up in season seven. Some fun facts. There were different versions of the opening film that featured, uh, like the opening segment that featured a different character to be last to enter the house, if you remember that. The show that week would usually center on that person, which was, I thought, a very smart sort of um, premise. Nine different versions of the theme song would be used over the series. As long as we've got each other, that song actually made it onto the charts. It hit number five in the adult contemporary chart in 1989 and number seven on Billboard, which is pretty interesting. Okay, number 11, Different Strokes. 
this is a bit of a tough one. It was a huge show uh, as a sitcom, but it dealt with some pretty tough topics, which was you know hard for the average kid who wasn't exposed to that sort of thing. But again, that exposure was probably good to introduce um, everyone to the, the different issues going on in the country. It, it had this pretty unique premise as well, too, based on that, you know, the rich white businessman taking in two black inner city boys from Harlem. I personally remember, again, it depends on your age and, and the approach you take. I remember feeling, you know, a bit overwhelmed with different strokes, but it still, it felt like required viewing. Like this was a hot show you had to watch. They really were the ones that pioneered that, you know, very special episode, which you knew was going to be very jarring as heard as soon as you heard those words. Over the years, they tackled subjects like racism, kidnapping, abuse, drug use, a lot more. The, the drug episode was a major TV moment as it would feature Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campa- campaign. Um, again, the power of television, because with only three networks, you have a huge audience watching. You were able to reach out to more people. Different Strokes is also the vehicle that launched Gary Coleman, making a focal point of the show, along with Todd Bridges and Dana Plato. Different Strokes also brought us the use of the catchphrase, you know, the what you talking about, Willis, which w- would help lead into other big catchphrases. Just thinking of like, the, did I do that? Steve Urkel from Family Matters. Different Strokes also seems to be pioneers of a different sort in a bad way because it's examples of childhood actors falling from grace that seem to plague the show after. Interesting, though, with all these different approaches, the unique um, premise of the show, tackling all these big subjects, it wasn't a big ratings hit, but it was still popular in the same way. The original, fun facts here, the original title was going to be 45 Minutes from Harlem. Uh, different strokes led to the spinoff, The Facts of Life, in case you didn't know that, featuring the housekeeper Edna Garrett. Arnold would appear in a Silver Spoons episode, so that connects all this nicely together. Okay, we have reached the top 10. So my influence takes over more now, but still, you know, shows I'd say are still pretty iconic. Number 10, Small Wonder. So Small Wonder was a weird show, but very worth watching. It was completely unique and was based on an inventor who created an artificially intelligent robot named Vicky who ends up living with the family. Small Wonder was kind of the perfect kid show, sort of. And I feel like it was right in my wheelhouse when it came out. Vicky is like an Avenger and has a ton of superpowers that she can use in ordinary situations. The Lawson family also has to keep her real identity under wraps with that premise, sort of like in ALF, which always works well in a sitcom. The show is interesting because it was one of the first that was made primarily for syndication. That meant the show cost next to nothing to produce because they didn't have to pay for like airing rights in prime time. The syndication is so much cheaper. That means they can include some decent technical shots um, when it came out, um, which were, you know, they look bad now, but at the time they, they weren't too awful. Came out in 1985 and would run for four seasons. Fun facts, Tiffany Brissett was actually, who played Vicky, was a multi-talented actress and was up for the role of Punky Brewster and was frustrated to be very limited in not being able to show off any of her abilities on the show. The kids all got along very well on the show, but apparently the parents of them were absolute nightmares each one demanding special attention to their child and their own tutors and cause like huge dramatic issues on the show in other countries where the show is dubbed it would be called super vicky okay number nine speaking of that segueing nice nicely punky brewster 
Punky Brewster was like a cartoon come to life, a huge hit with kids and the perfect premise for an 80s kids show. Kind of. I'll get to that in a bit too, like different strokes. In this show, you get the very talented Soleil Moonfried playing Punky, who's an orphan girl taken in and raised by a foster parent. There's a real theme of that over the 80s. Punky Brewster aired on Sunday nights, and that made it a bit of a unique situation considering it was a kid's show. The FCC had put in place regulations that networks had to use the time period of 7 to 8 p.m. on Sunday night for either news programs or family entertainment. This is one of the reasons you'd see the, you know, the wonderful world of Disney or the Jim Henson Hour that came up during this time slot. Since NBC didn't want to go up against the mammoth 60 Minutes, they decided to go the family option, and that's where Punky Brewster was born. As much as, again, Punky Brewster was kids-based, like different strokes, it got into some pretty deep stuff. They covered things like missing kids, serial killers, drugs, drug use, the Challenger disaster, if you remember that. There's the infamous fridge episode where a kid gets locked in a fridge, which still haunts me to this day. But the character of Punky struck a huge chord with kids who loved this show and then its cartoon spinoff. Fun facts here, the character Punky was based on a real person. Peyton Punky Brewster was a childhood friend of NBC programming director Brandon Tartikoff. And then the dog was named after him too. Punky Brewster would be also unique because it made 15-minute long episodes to compete with Monday Night Football in case the games had run long. That way you wouldn't miss the entire show. Um, you know, as they join it already in progress. So they had these 15-minute episodes ready to go so you could see a complete episode. And just speaking of the popularity with kids, the character of Punky, not Soleil Moonfry, but the character was getting 10,000 letters a week from kids that thought she was a real person. That's how important this show was in the 80s and just, you know, again, striking that chord with children. Okay, number eight, Webster. Webster was one of my go-to after-school required viewings along with G.I. Joe and Transformers. This was one of my favorite shows of the 80s, and I was very immersed in it. Webster was played by Emmanuel Lewis, uh, who had lost his parents following that great orphan theme of the 80s, taken in by an ex-NFL player named George Papadopoulos. The show was, to me, originally the premise of the show was to focus on the life of George and his wife Kate and how they would ad adapt to being newly married and then throwing a kid in the mix. Emmanuel Lewis was so good, though, that he became more the focus of the show. It, again, sort of like the Steve Urkel effect that would happen with Family Matters. This caused a lot of tension on set with Alex Karras, George, and real-life wife Susan, Kate, fighting with ABC production staff and writers over this. Webster debuted on September 16, 1983, and only went until May 8, 1987. It started in syndication in 1987 with two new seasons, and that's where a lot of kids would start watching it after schools. Webster was an instant hit, but of course drew comparisons to different strokes. Uh, I, they didn't go super deep, but there was a few of those shows. I don't know if you remember the notable episode where there was the fire that Webster accidentally starts in his closet, leads to the destruction of their apartment, but that was a way for them to get into a new set and a new house where there was more for Webster to do within the house because he was the character was very limited within the apartment. Okay, fun facts. The show was going to be called Another Ball Game at first when Karis was going to be more of the focal point. When Lewis came on board, the, the name was then changed to Then Came You, which is the theme song, and then they went with Webster. And Emmanuel Lewis was 17 by the end of the series, playing someone half his age. Okay, number seven, and this is obviously a tougher one, but The Cosby Show. And 
I mean, it's you can't look back on this show without it being tainted, and it makes it hard to rank here, but it has to be included because of how big this show was in the 80s. Like, Powerhouse doesn't even define how big and prominent and successful this show was in the 1980s. You know, it starts with, at the time, America's Dad and Bill Cosby, and it was a show that no one could touch rating-wise or viewership or sponsorship. Like, nothing could come close. The closest over the years, and not even in the same way, would be like Friends or Seinfeld. But again, they didn't even have the same power because this drew in so many viewers. The Cosby Show, of course, story uh, focused on the story of Dr. Cliff Huxtable and his family, which were an upper-class family that lived in Brooklyn. His wife was Claire. They had five kids, Theo, Sandra, Denise, Vanessa, and Rudy. And again, this was must-see TV before that was even a thing. And this was one of the few shows I remember watching with my whole family. From 1986 to 1990, it was the number one show in America every single year. The Cosby Show would routinely get over 30 million viewers an episode, which is 10 million more than Monday Night Football gets today. So, I mean, it's just, it's hard to look back on the Cosby Show lightly, but it's it's important because it single-handedly recreated the sitcom, which wasn't really happening at the time. It brought it back um, into the forefront and, and showed how important and powerful a sitcom could be. It also allowed for more African-American based shows again, like family matters, a different world and living color, fresh Prince of Bel-Air. So, I mean, for that reason, it has to be acknowledged. Okay. Fun facts. ABC passed in the show originally and then gave it to NBC that hurt seven versions of the theme song were used over the series. And and just speaking as we talk about revenue and, and relation to things like Friends and, and Seinfeld, over its run, the Cosby Show made $2.5 billion in revenue for the network. Okay, number six, Perfect Strangers. So now, you know, a very fun and harmless show and I think worthy of um, the placement on this list. It was another show that I remember my whole family being able to watch. And it took that classic fish out of water scenario that's used in countless scenarios um, with sitcoms. Perfect Strangers starred Bronson Pinchot and Mark Lynn Baker as Balky Bartokamus and Larry Appleton, cousin Larry. And Perfect Strangers, you've got a classic odd couple type scenario, sort of like the booze and buddies things they, they were doing. You got the American and his extremely foreign cousin. Um, they try to coexist and we get to laugh at Balky kind of like he's the original Borat. Perfect Strangers came out on March 25th, 1986 and ran until August 6th, 1993 for eight seasons. Again, more than I'd realized. Um, Perfect Strangers is an important show, though, in TV history as it first started on Wednesdays, but then moved to Friday where it became the anchor for the monumental TGIF lineup. Again, it's crazy to think of a time, if you remember, where Fridays were a must stay at home night to see all these big sitcoms that were piled on top of each other. Perfect Strangers put together a perfect combination of elements. Um, I think that made for an ideal sitcom. Okay. uh, Fun facts. The great theme song, nothing's going to stop us now was written by the same duo who composed the themes for full house, step-by-step and family matters. Perfect Strangers is also what led us to Family Matters as the whole of uh, the role of Harriet Winslow originated on it. And that also led to Barry and, uh, sorry, Balky and Larry appearing in one of the early Family Matters episodes in the pilot, but they ended up cutting the scene, which is too bad. Okay, number five, Alf. 
Alf may be one of my favorite shows of all time and not just the 80s. It came out in 1986 where I was about nine years old and I felt like I was I felt like this show was directly made for me. Alf, of course, is the story of Gordon Shumway, who hails from the planet Melmac and crash lands on Earth, ending up living with the Tanner family. The humor and tone played very well to kids and families. So again, another one of those collective viewing experiences. I remember so there's not a lot. So many memories are hazy, um, but I distinctly remember watching the pilot episode with my family and like, like crying, laughing from some of the stuff on this. Alf was very unique because the entire show is based around a puppet and this led to a ton of issues shooting out i've done a whole show on elf if you want to go back and listen shooting elf was so technically difficult that it just created nightmares for the production the whole set was four feet off the ground for the puppeteers to operate elf and trap doors were spread throughout the set so elf could pop up all over Due to all the takes and the coordinating with a puppet, each 22-minute show would take 20 to 25 hours to shoot. Max Wright, who played Willie Tanner, was known for being so disgruntled having to play second fiddle to a puppet. There's a story of him actually attacking Alf the Puppet. You got to go online and see some of these stories or go on YouTube and listen um, to some of this stuff. Alf only ran for four seasons, but it left with an unresolved cliffhanger. If you remember this, where Alf is captured by the alien task force. This was actually the strategy of the show's producers because they were trying to force another season, but it didn't work. It did give us Project Alf, though, but it's not considered canon, so never mind. Okay, fun facts. The appearance of Alf was kept secret right up to the first day of shooting with none of the actors knowing what he was going to look or sound like, which is nuts. Paul Fusco, who created and voiced Alf, uh, had to audition his character for the one of the producers and directors of the show, who turned out to be former manager of Jim Henson. No pressure there. Uh, fun fact, the planet Melmac is named after a brand of old dishes. Okay, number four, the Dukes of Hazard. So again, now we can see the show is potentially, you know, much more offensive, possibly racist too. But growing up in the 80s, it was another one of these gigantic shows and just appealed to kids so much. It was a kid's dream come true to watch the carefree life of Bone Luke Duke and one of the sweetest cars in history, the General Lee. I think the Dukes of Hazard worked so well as the characters and the casting were all perfect. You've got the cool Duke boys. You've got the elder and uncle Jesse. You've got the smoking hot Daisy. You've got the evil boss hog. And then you've got the bumbling Roscoe P. Coltrane. Every episode is pretty much the same. The Duke boys would evade the law. We would get some epic car chases and car crashes. But we didn't care, though. And the Dukes of Hazard brought great entertainment each week. It first aired on January 26, 1979. Went until fe- February 8, 1985. The only problem, if you remember with this show, was the letdown when Cousins Coy and Vance Duke would show up. Little did we know, as idiot kids, it was because of contract disputes with John Schneider and Tom Wapat, who played Bo and Luke Duke. Fun facts, the Dukes of Hazard was a big ratings hit, uh, but they would air it after Dallas um, to not try and, you know mess things up but that it, the the follow-up from the dallas audience made it the number two most watched show in the later seasons miniature cars were actually used for some of the stunts because they were wrecking so many things like speaking of that over the course of the series 309 dodge chargers were used as the general lee that's how much they wrecked okay the top three 
Number three, family ties. Again, to me, I like this is borderline the perfect sitcom and a huge hit in my family and in a lot of families. It helped launch Michael J. Fox and again was this required Sunday night viewing. This Sunday night time slot, I believe, really helped solidify it. Again, it had to be that family show, you know, those FCC regulations, but it helped generate that strong viewing audience. I never missed an episode of Family Ties. And the iconic Without Us is like this familiar calling card of the show. Family Ties is interesting as it's centered around a family during, you know, this Reagan era and the movement towards more conservative values after the liberalism of the 60s and 70s. So the premise is a great because it, it centers, centers around Alex P. Keaton, who's a strong Republican in con- contrast to his more liberal hippie parents. Family Ties came out on September 22nd, 1982, ran seven seasons until May 4th, 1989, making it a true show of the decade. The writing was great. The acting was great. It was funny. I was a huge Michael J. Fox fan um, in conjunction with Back to the Future. I mean, he just seemed to rule the decade. When Family Ties came out, it's another example of it not being a ratings hit, but slowly would grow, and then it would move into the top 10 and reach the number two overall show for 1986 and 1987, pulling in 30 million viewers an episode. Again, this is like Cosby Show territory. It's just the Cosby Show did that for more years. Uh, Family Ties just did it for the couple years. But, you know, it was always still a ratings hit. Some fun facts. I mean, you're going to have to go listen to some of my Back to the Future related shows, but... Michael J. Fox was so exhausted between filming Family Ties and Back to the Future that he would have to be, he'd film Family Ties all through the day and then be driven to Back to the Future, where a lot, you know, a lot of the scenes in Back to the Future are set at night and he's filming until like two, three in the morning. He would be picked up and carried, put into the back of a station wagon where he would sleep. Then he'd be carried out of the car into his bed where he would sleep for like two or three hours and then he would go back to filming Family Ties. He was so exhausted. He tells this story. He was so exhausted that um, before one of the scenes on Family Ties, he starts panicking because he couldn't find the red camcorder, which was a Back to the Future scene. He had no idea. He couldn't differentiate all the time between what he was actually filming. The show introduced us to some huge soon-to-be stars such as Courtney Cox, Tom Hanks, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Will Wheaton, Gina Davis. And a really interesting thing researching this show, this whole show was sold on a four-word pitch, Hip Parents, Square Kids, which I think is a very – it's a great idea for a sitcom, and that's why it works so well. Okay, number two, The A-Team. So it's hard not to have the A-Team at number one, um, but I'll explain my reasons. The A-Team for a kid in the 80s was like G.I. Joe come to life. Uh, and again, for a kid growing up, this is a mind-blowing viewing experience. The A-Team was action-adventure, featured the iconic Mr. T, ran from 1983 to 1987 on NBC. With one of the greatest TV intros of all time, we learned that the A-Team was part of a special forces unit who were court-martialed for a crime they didn't commit. They are still on the run, but can be hired if you can find them for any problems you have. The A-Team worked well because each episode was like a standalone show. There weren't a lot of long story arcs that made you have to watch multiple shows in a row to follow the story. With the A-Team, you could jump in at any time and just take in the action. The characters were all badasses. They drove an awesome van. There was tons of explosions. Perfect recipe for you know a kid in the 80s. 
Ratings wise, the A-Team was huge with up to 20% of the viewing audience tuning in and it would score some of the highest ratings NBC had in years. But in the fourth season, things started to fall and they dropped as low as the 29th spot. It's hard to say what really caused this and they, they still weren't sure, you know, looking back after it was canceled. But whatever, I still had my A-Team lunchbox. Fun fact, no one is ever actually killed on the A-Team, um, the show, nor is there actually any blood, which is surprising. The B.A. and B.A. Baracus stood for bad attitude, naturally. There was also some hilarious cameos over the course of the show, including Pat Sajak and Vanna White, Hulk Hogan, Rick James was on the show for some reason. Okay, now we move into number one, my top show of the 1980s, Knight Rider. Knight Rider is... Um, just like an event to me that that's the way I remember it for growing up in the eighties. It was the epitome of cool. It was cinematic and it felt like you were watching a movie every week. I was just old enough to watch it. And I always had the feeling that I technically shouldn't be allowed to watch this because it seemed like a little bit dangerous, but that was obviously a massive, massive appeal to it. Um, you know, it featured a cool hero in Michael Knight and the sweetest car in history kit. Knight Rider came out in 1982 and went until 1986, telling the story of a modern day crime fighter and his artificially intelligent car. It had an incredible intro and theme song, and it set the stage for all the amazing action and adventure to come. Kit, voiced by William Daniels, a.k.a. Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World, looked and sounded better than anything we could imagine. I've got a whole other thing, show on Knight Rider if you want to <laughs> check that out. So I'll wrap it up with some fun facts here. Kit stood for Knight Industries 2000. Um, Williams was never actually credited for doing the voice of Kit, which is pretty crazy. And then last one fact, David Hasselhoff and Williams never even met until a Christmas party later that year because of how the voices were recorded. Okay, that's it. That's my top list of shows of the 80s. I hope you, I'm sure you disagree with some. Hopefully you find them pretty close and learned a few interesting things. But thanks for listening to the show. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there and I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.